Father, we are so thankful for the great delight that we are given, the great honor that we would have to be a part of your work of advancing the gospel. This morning, would you open our hearts and open our ears so that we might receive your word? Would you do a work in us that we would be people motivated not by duty, not by guilt, but by joy to see the gospel advancing so people might hear the good news and come to know you. We pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. But before he went down, he, as it seemed to me, took an oath from each of us at the mouth of the pit to this effect, that while we lived, we should never let go of the rope. Last week, we talked about the relationship between two deeply committed, missionary-minded believers, William Carey and Andrew Fuller. Carey was the one that went out into the missions field, and Fuller was the one who supported him back home. We talked about how Fuller recounts this moment where Carey laid before him the immensity of the task before him. It was as if he was about to go down into a dark cavern. And Carey asked them, will you support me? Will you hold on to the rope? Last week we saw the great joy that we get to have in partnering in the ministry of the gospel. To, to not just act like donors that drop dimes on worthy causes, but to be partners who go along for the journey so we share in the joy. This week we're going to turn our attention to the other end of that rope. What is it that motivates someone to leave behind comfort and security and ambition and family, uh, motivates them to take a great personal risk to follow a rope down into a dark hole, to go somewhere where people have not heard about Jesus and give their life to trying to share with them. This morning, we're going to ask ourselves, what is it that motivates a person toward that? And my suggestion, what Scripture will show us this morning, is that duty, guilt, a sense of responsibility is not sufficient for that task. That duty will not do it. Only delight will. That only joy can send someone, fling them out from home and security to go out to a place that needs the gospel and give them the type of perseverance needed to see the task through. Think for, with me for a moment the difference between something that's a duty to you and a delight. Every springtime, if you are a working person, you have to deal with the reality of income taxes. Now, I, I hope that you all uh, know that it's your responsibility, even your duty, to pay your income taxes, right? Uh, very few of us enjoy the process of filling out those government forms. Even fewer of us enjoy writing a check that goes to Uncle Sam. And we know deep down that it is the right thing for us to do. It's important for our government to have funds. It's important for us as citizens to do what is our obligation out of duty, we write that check each year. But consider what a difference it is to do something instead out of delight. I had a, a friend 
that in college we were working in the same programming shop. And uh, oftentimes we would go out to lunch and everyone would go to restaurants and we'd eat out and, and he would always bring a brown bag lunch. And then when it was time to leave, he would get into a really, really tiny car. Uh, the, the type of car that when the wind is blowing really hard, you roll down the windows so you don't get blown off course like that small. I used to joke that if he got into a head-on collision with a Huffy, he would lose. Uh, he drove this really tiny, beat-up old car. He was always scrimping and saving money. And yet, every day he showed up for work, he had a smile on his face. You want to know why? It's because at the end of college, he was buying a ring because there was someone that he was going to propose to. It was a delight that he got to buy that ring. See, the difference between going about the task of bringing the, the gospel to peoples that have never heard it, the Great Commission, the, the difference between doing it out of duty and delight is the difference between moving from I have to to I get to. My hope is this morning that God would be working through his word in each of us, that we would be a church that says, I get to be a part of flinging out the gospel to all the corners of the earth. We'll see that as we move through this passage in two sections, two ways where we could discover this sort of joy that can endure going down a rope into a dark cavern for Jesus. First, in verse 12, we'll see the true value that you must discover of advancing the gospel. True value of advancing the gospel. And then in verses 13 through 14, we'll see the emboldening impact of advancing the gospel. The emboldening impact of advancing the gospel. And as we see these things from Scripture, my hope is that we will move from a church that feels that we must, that we have to, to a church that feels like we get to be a part of what God's doing, bringing the gospel to all the corners of the earth. Let's begin in verse 12. Let's discover the true value of advancing the gospel. Paul starts out and says, I, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Paul starts off with a little bit of an FYI. In case you hadn't realized it yet, Philippians, I, I've just poured out my heart before you of what it is that I see within you, the great confidence I have for you, the great assurance I have from our partnership. In case you haven't picked up on it, I want you to know something really, really important, that what's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. What we get from this sentence is a sense of what it is that Paul thinks is most important in his life. And quite frankly, friends, it is jaw-dropping. It's not about his comfort or his well-being or his satisfaction. It's about the fact that the gospel is moving forward. I don't know if you've ever had this experience where you have just been floored by someone that finds so much satisfaction in the gospel advancing that it just doesn't seem to make sense. I was in seminary, and I, this was the first time I ever had this happen to me. I was going through classes with a, a guy, and we, we were studying the same bo books, reading the same books. We were, had the same teachers. We both were desirous to be in ministry. But he had this, this joy at the thought of leaving his family behind and of going up into the mountains of Venezuela, living without electricity, 
learning to ride a horse so that he could get around. I, I remember one conversation in particular, he just said, Tommy, Tommy, can you imagine being able to be there with those people and to introduce them to Jesus? What a privilege. And it just didn't make sense. I, was, I had never met someone that had that sort of deep-seated joy in seeing the gospel advance that way. It's astonishing when you see it. I'm sure it was astonishing to those who met Paul. Consider what is packed into that little sentence, what has happened to me. Remember who Paul is. Paul is a man that came from the right sort of family. He had the right sort of education. He had the right stuff. He was a, a Pharisee of Pharisees. That means he was religious and well-educated. He w went to the most prestigious re religious school you could go, go to. He was a rising star who had the world in front of him. Everyone would have loved to be associated with him. And yet one day, on a road to Damascus, God knocked him off of his high horse. He met Jesus. And when he met Jesus, everything changed. From there forward, he was not on the path toward career success. He was on the path towards career suicide. Everyone that used to associate with him surely has abandoned him by this point. His family, being religious Jews, they would have had nothing to do with him. He would go around planting churches, and if you tried to count up all the places he'd been chased out of town, or left for dead, you, you wouldn't have enough fingers on your hands. He lost prosperity. He lost his comfort. He lost his social status. The particular prison he's in probably resulted from him trying to do a good thing, to, to go back to Jerusalem and to encourage the church there. And yet he was whipped, the, as a result of opposition to him, the Jews there were whipped into such a frenzy that it took a whole Roman battalion to keep him safe. And he was whisked away in chains. Paul just says in one little sentence, what's happened to me? In that little sentence, we have revealed for us a heart that is utterly centered on the gospel. A heart that finds joy in the gospel advancing above all else. He wants the Philippian church that he dearly loves to know that what matters most is still occurring. The gospel is still advancing. You can see that Paul's life has been totally turned around when you ask yourself, what is Paul's main ambition in his life? What is it that makes Paul jazzed up, so joyful? If you have your Bibles, flip with me to Romans chapter 15. Romans 15, 20 through 21. If you were to ask what is the Apostle Paul's mission statement for his life, this would be it. Romans 15, 20 through 21. Apostle Paul says, and, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. 
What's Paul's mission in life? It's to see people that have never heard the gospel, hear it, and receive it with joy. Because Paul himself has received it with joy. Consider what sort of joy that would look like in your life. If you were so amazed, so blown away by the fact that you got the privilege of meeting Jesus, that any opportunity God gave you to to bring that knowledge to someone else would be the greatest joy your heart could know. Let's be clear, today there is still great need for the gospel to go places to reach people that have never been reached. The Joshua Project, a website you can go to that has statistics on things like this. It classifies 41% or 3.13 billion people in the world as unreached. Now, what do they mean by unreached? By unreached, they mean a people group that don't have enough Christians and enough resources among the Christian community that it's likely that most of the people in that people group will have a reasonable shot of hearing the gospel. It's a place where without unforeseen circumstances, we might call them a miracle. Without a really big change of events, most of the people in that country will not have the opportunity to hear the gospel. If we take it a a step further even, they have a classification not just of the unreached, but of the pioneer. That window's a little tighter. Instead of 3.13 billion, it's 1.85 billion. That works out to 4,700 people groups. Those are people that have such a small fraction of their population that are Christians that it's basically negligible. There's no even spark of a movement that might turn into something one day to reach that nation in great numbers. These are the furthest of the furthest off from hearing the gospel. Now you hear numbers like that And immediately, I know what's happening. It's the same thing that happens to me. You hear numbers like that, and immediately your heart starts going into duty and guilt mode. I mean, we're we're used to watching the TV specials of really sick-looking animals suffering, and and then a, a, a number comes up on the screen, and it says, you know, just for one cup of coffee a day, you can alleviate this suffering. Even in the Christian world, we're we're honestly pretty guilty of motivating by duty and guilt instead of by delight. When we hear numbers like that, we need to do the work of of not responding just immediately by guilt and duty. We need to respond instead with joy. The thought that God might use us. He might send among our number someone out to reach some of these people, that he's given us the great duty of being his ambassadors. Not that we have to, that we get to. That was the sort of attitude that Paul had, and that's the sort of attitude I hope our church has. I hope we would prioritize the reaching of the unreached, of partnering with and sending out missionaries to places that have the least witness available so that we might share in the joy, maybe even being on the ground floor of the first journey 
to hearing about Jesus of some. Paul discovered the true value of advancing the gospel. There's nothing sweeter to a heart. There's no greater joy than you can have than to be part of God bringing the gospel to someone who's never heard it before. But that leads to a pretty important question. If advancing the gospel is the most important thing, if that's what produces this joy, how does being locked up, how does that actually further the cause of the gospel? Well, that's where we see in verses 13 and 14. Here we see the emboldening impact of advancing the gospel. The emboldening impact of advancing the gospel. Sometimes you just have to know an opportunity when you see it. Uh, back in 1945, there was a radar technician that was in the guts of a military radar, which at the time was kind of the bleeding edge of military technology. And so he's in there working on wiring and things, you know, a radar that would be used to find enemy aircraft, things like that. And when something rather um, embarrassing happens, a chocolate bar that was in his pants melted. Uh, I'm sure he got some snide comments from the other men in the radar installation about the state of his pants. Uh, but this man, his name was Percy Spencer, had an epiphany. He realized that the chocolate bar in his pants, it melted because of the radiation from the microwaves that were used in the radar. And his epiphany and that opportunity that he was presented with turned into the modern convenience of the microwave. Any baked potato that you nuke, it's because of Percy Spencer. <laughs> now, it takes a, a sort of ingenuity and, and eyes to see an opportunity to take advantage of something like that. And if there's one thing you could say about the Apostle Paul, is he was a man that was ambitious for Jesus and knew an opportunity when he saw it. So imagine with me for a second that Paul is locked up in a Roman prison. But what sort of a Roman prison? Look with me in verse 13. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Paul wasn't in just any Roman prison. He was in what was called an imperial Roman prison. That is, he had the elite guards of Caesar, the Praetorian Guard. These were the men that were making sure that the Apostle Paul made it to his audience with Caesar. The way the Romans structured their military, there was a force that was elite called the Praetorian Guard. They, they had about 9,000 to their number. They were bad hombres to be sure. They were known for being the power behind Caesar. They deposed Caesars when they felt like they got off track and they protected Caesar from all manner of threats. It would be a little bit like the Secret Service today. When someone was desired by Caesar, when Caesar wanted to see someone's face, the Praetorian Guard were the ones that made sure wherever they were in the Roman Empire, they made it there. And whoever you were, you did not want to get in the way of the Praetorian Guard. They were known for being brutal, violent men, and they made sure that people did not get out of their, their arrest. Uh, one of the ways they ensured that is they would literally shackle a prisoner to a guard 24 hours a day. 
So they would have you, if you were desired by Caesar, you would have handcuffs on and that would be tied to a very large, very motivated Roman soldier. And you and that soldier would get to know each other pretty well over the next 12 hours until the next soldier came. On and on until you got in front of Caesar. So imagine for a second you're the Apostle Paul. You are locked by metal chains to a very large, very mean, very violent man. What do you think the Apostle Paul is going to do in that scenario? I think at some point or the other, the guard, probably in a condescending sort of way, might ask, so, what did you do to get into this mess? I mean, what, what did you do that Caesar would want to hear from you? And imagine what Paul might have said in that moment. Well, I'm glad you asked. I'm actually here because I'm a servant of a Jewish man named Jesus. Jesus is someone that soldiers like you killed by crucifying him. But you know what? The most amazing thing happened. Three days later, he rose from the dead. And that was God's way of confirming that he's actually the savior of the world. That he died as a sacrifice for sins. He saved me. And he can save you. Can, can I tell you about him? For 12 hours, that soldier would then be stuck in an evangelistic conversation with the Apostle Paul until there's a shift change at which point Paul has another opportunity. Day after day, week after week, month after month. I'm sure gossip would have taken over at some point. You can imagine the Roman guard saying, What's up with that weird old Hebrew guy? You talk to him, isn't he odd? Keeps talking about that Jesus guy and he's smiling with chains on him. What's the deal with him? Little by little, person after person heard until Paul says, the whole imperial guard has heard of Christ. We know from the end of the book of Philippians that it's likely that at least some of the guards became Christians. Philippians 4.22, as he's wrapping up the letter, he says, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's house. Imagine that, a Roman guard coming to Christ because Paul is in chains. What power there is. What power there is. What impact the gospel has when people are bold to be witnesses for Christ. Paul's not the only man that's ever experienced the, the fact that incarceration could actually lead to a catalyzing effect on the gospel. There's a pastor whose name is going to be hard for me to pronounce, so forgive me, but Pastor Haristo Kulichev. In 1985 in Bulgaria, he was imprisoned. He's quoted as saying that both prisoners and jailers asked many questions, and it turned out that we had more fruitful ministry there than we could have expected in church. God was better served by our presence in prison than if we had been free. This has been the testimony of many. When God puts us on a detour, even a painful detour, and yet our ambition is to see the gospel go forward, we actually discover this was no detour at all. This was the very path he had for us originally. This is how the gospel will advance. Paul was making the most of every opportunity so that his joy might grow, even locked up in chains. But it wasn't just an impact in seeing Roman guards come to Christ. Verse 14 shows us 
then it also impacted the Christians in whatever city it was that Paul was in. We, we don't know precisely what city he was in, but wherever it was, the believers there were catalyzed by Paul's bold witness. Look with me in verse 14. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. You might think that seeing their leader Paul in jail would have a dampening effect on people's evangelistic endeavors. I mean, Paul's pretty wise. Paul's got some education I don't have. Paul's got the gift of evangelism. Paul knows the Roman legal system. And look, even Paul ends up in jail. What are they going to do to little old me? You might think that would be what happens when someone steps out in faith and gets smacked for it. And yet, the opposite is true. Instead of dampening their enthusiasm for the gospel, it unleashes it. Instead of fear, they're freed to boldly proclaim Jesus. Now, I don't think this is because people look to Paul as a hero. You know, we, we do this at times. We look to someone who does something particularly well. Maybe it's a sports hero or someone in business. And we look to them for motivation. And I, I'm sure there's some of that going on. But I don't think primarily people are doing this because they were worshiping Paul in that way. What's happening is that the believers in this city are seeing the joy of giving themselves totally to the gospel's advancement. They're seeing that Paul really believes this, that the gospel must really be true for him to be doing this. And they're saying, I can have that joy too. See, this is what happens when people boldly take a rope and go down a dark hole for Jesus. It preaches to those of us who watch it happen that the gospel must be true. And we can have that joy also. I spent uh, six years in Wheaton, Illinois, which I'm so thankful for. One of the things the Lord did in that time was really open my eyes to the work that has been done in global missions. I, I was culpably ignorant of all the sacrifices that believers had been making up until that point. One of the stories that you can't help but hear over and over again in Wheaton is the, are the stories of the Aka Five. Uh, you know, the, the story that's been immortalized in books and movies of Through Gates of Splendor and The End of the Spear, Nate Saint, uh, G, uh, Jim Elliott, uh, the five of them Wheaton College graduates that went out trying to reach an unreached tribe and in the process of making contact ended up giving their lives for that cause. What's been so amazing to see is how that story of five men, the, the best and brightest we had, being sent off to a far, far place that had yet been unreached and, and losing their lives, how that actually served to unleash missionaries all over the world. People at Wheaton will tell you with joy of how the number of missionaries spiked after word of their sacrifice came back to the States. Same things happened in other places in Colombia. A Wycliffe missionary named Chet Bitterman was killed by a group of guerrillas. 
the next year, applications to Wycliffe doubled. When you see someone that is so consumed with advancing the gospel, live in such a way that you know this must be true, friends, it has a way of emboldening all of us. This has massive implications for us as a church. Massive implications. First, it should mean that each of us here this morning, even you children who are in service this morning, we should be asking ourselves, might God be sending me to go down that rope, to go down a dark hole for Jesus? Might God be growing me here to fling me out for the cause of advancing the gospel? Maybe you've had missionaries in your family and you've always had a positive thought about them. Maybe you've never known anyone that's been in missions up until recently. Maybe it's been a dream of yours since you were a little kid. Or maybe for the first time you're feeling something stirring in you that frankly makes you a little afraid. Friend, if there is such great joy to seeing the gospel advance, we ought not try to push down a call within us. If you're feeling something like that stirring within you, I encourage you, have a conversation with me or some other mature Christian, pray about it. Seek about it. It's not that something that you have to do. It's something that you get to do if God were to send you out. Second, it means we as a church must be a place where missionaries can grow deep and then be flung far out. We have a congregation that I'm so glad it has diversity of ages in it, so a great blessing. With that comes a responsibility. To those of you who are on the older end of the spectrum, you have an incredible amount to give to a younger believer. Whether you're downstairs serving in children's ministry or, or getting coffee with someone that's just out of college, I want you to ask yourself, are you treating these relationships that God's given you in your local church, are you treating them as if that person might one day be sent down a rope into a dark cavern for Jesus? Are you sowing into these young hearts the truth of the gospel, what it means to be faithful through difficulty, how you can find joy when your dreams are shattered, are you telling them of the stories of victory of how you've seen the gospel advance? Friends, if not, you are missing out on a great joy. Think about it. One day you might hear that some young person, some young person that you had a conversation with is now halfway around the world sharing Jesus with people who've never heard of him. To my younger members of the congregation, yes, even you children that are here this morning. I don't want you to think that your job is just to come to church until you're 18 and then you're out of here. If God might one day send you to live somewhere very different than Indianapolis and become a missionary, are you using the time that he has you in a church that teaches the Bible and has other Christians around you, are you using this time to be ready for the challenges that might face you? We ought to be a church that is committed to growing deep and flinging far missionaries. I pray that plays out in the way we disciple each other. Third, 
I think that this is a call for all of us to be bold in our evangelism. As the church, wherever Paul was, was emboldened by the fact that he believed the gospel so much that this could be true of him. And that meant that they too could be faithful and a bold witness. We too ought to have that same dynamic anytime we hear from missionaries that have gone to the ends of the earth to preach Jesus to those who haven't heard him. I hope you enjoy hearing from your missionaries. I hope this morning hearing from John was an encouragement to you. I hope getting prayer updates is a enlivening to your soul. But I hope also it's driving you to be a bold witness where God has you. Whether you're holding the rope or going down into the dark cavern, we all should be the type of Christians that can boldly speak about Jesus because there's such joy in gospel advancement. I remember the, a way this worked out in my own life. I had an opportunity to sit with a believer that had arrived in the U.S. after uh, getting word that people were coming for him and his family somewhere in the Middle East. The way God worked it out, he knew someone in Wheaton, Illinois. That person was able to put in the right word, and he was able to get on a plane that night and arrived in Wheaton 20-odd hours later or however long it was. I just got to sit with him for about 10 minutes, hear about the cost he paid to talk about Jesus with his friends and family and how he left behind an academic career in his hometown, how he lost all of his immediate family except for his, his wife and kids, all for the sake of Jesus. You know what happened? That week I found it easier than it had been in years to talk about Jesus. That ought to be happening to us over and over and over again. When we see the gospel advancing, when we see people finding joy and giving of themselves because the gospel is worth giving your life for, when we see people living as if Jesus must be true because they're giving up so much for him, friends, it ought to embolden us to live the same way right where God has us. As we close Reach 2018, I've been praying as a pastor that we would be the type of church goes along for the journey so we can share in the joy. And the type of church that isn't motivated by guilt or duty, but it's motivated by delight. Brothers and sisters, there's such joy before us if we will be faithful to this undertaking. Not because we have to, but because we get to be a part of what Jesus is doing. Saving people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation till the day he returns. Let's pray.